Hispanic, Native American, or Asian. Now, I realize that the subject matter that I'm talking about today is of a great sensitive nature and can cause great emotional stress. For my brothers and sisters of you who are referred to as people of color, that is, you're a part of the minority groups that make up the population of the United States, this can be a stressful topic because of personal experience, uh, history, and then current societal reasons. For my brothers and sisters who would be falling into the category of what we would consider to be white, the stress can be for a different reason. To get an inside view, I looked at the works of uh, Dr. Beverly Tatum, and she quotes from Paul Kevill, who as an insider said this about the community of those who are white when it comes to this topic. He said this, uh, whatever our economic status, many white people become paralyzed with some measure of fear, guilt, or defensiveness when racism is addressed. And so with those things in mind, I would like to ask from you a large amount of grace for today from everyone as I talk about a very difficult topic and I will be saying some very distasteful historical things in order to make you aware of the gravity and the nature uh, and the pervasiveness of this problem. Before we continue, I would like to take a moment to make a few acknowledgments. First, I would like to thank my wife for helping me do research on this topic. Second, I would like to acknowledge Pastor Mike uh, in my research for the last week and a half on this topic. Uh, even though I have great respect for Pastor Mike, it has increased as a result of doing research on this topic. Uh, I want to acknowledge the fact that Pastor Mike has taken time to address this topic publicly in the 10 years I've been here over a number of times. Uh, he's sought in his own relationships and relationships with others around him to treat people with dignity and respect, and he has sought to make Living Water a place that is fair and equal. I also want to acknowledge that each of you have taken a step to address this issue, either by being participants and attending here like a church like Living Water, or taking personal steps in your life that I've had a chance to witness myself in a variety of different ways. And to some degree, Living Water presents itself uh, in this uh, environment in the United States of America as an exception in some ways to what's going on in general society around us. But today I will be looking at the general societal problem. So this enormous societal problem in light of that reality, uh, I must let you know up front that uh, my knowledge on the topic is limited. I'm pretty much at a state of awareness and that prevents me from being an ex expert on the topic. And therefore, in light of that, in this message, I'm going to have to highly narrow the scope of the message. And so that means that there will be many issues that I will not address. I am aware of that. However, I will try to give you uh, a picture of the gravity and the nature and the expanse of this topic by referencing some of those larger issues without dealing with them in detail. For that, now I want to ask you to go ahead and open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2 to our text for today. And when you find it, if you don't mind standing for the reading of God's word, I would greatly appreciate it. Verses 11 through 16. Starting at verse 11, 
Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Thank you. Let me pray for us now. Father, we come to this very difficult moment. Uh, you arranged the order of events uh, in our lives. And Lord, we pray that you would grant us grace by your presence. Help us to see these things clearly. I, Lord, I realize that... Um, that as we talk about these difficult topics, we must address these things because without addressing them, uh, change will never happen, as we have seen from history. So we pray, Lord, that you would be with us today, that at the end we might see how we might better live if we need to do that in our personal lives. Uh, we pray that you are glorified and honored and your people are edified. In Jesus' precious name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So each morning I get up to take time to, to read in the scriptures in the morning and I jump on my iPad and I pull it up and oftentimes there will be news articles that will appear and sometimes I will read them and other times I will not. But this particular week there was an article of interest to me that caught my attention and so I want to share some excerpts from that article from the New York Times because I believe it sets the stage and brings together uh, the issues that I will be speaking about in, uh, in brevity today as we talk about this topic of the problem of race. The article was entitled, Why Some Black Puerto Ricans Choose White on the Census. And I believe it gives us a good window into this problem. It goes like this. It said, uh, the island of Puerto Rico has a long history of encouraging its residents to identify as white. But there are growing efforts to raise awareness about racism. Loisa, a township founded by formerly enslaved Africans, is one of the many places in Puerto Rico where African-inspired traditions like the bomba, dance worships, uh, is thriving. But that doesn't mean that all of the people who live there would necessarily call themselves black. More than three-quarters of Puerto Ricans identified as white on the last census, even though much of the population on the island has roots in Africa. The number is down 80% from 20 years ago, but activists and demographers say this is still inaccurate and they are still working to get more Puerto Ricans of African descent to identify as black on the next census in an effort to draw attention to the island's racial disparities. Now all the residents of Puerto Rico can select yes, Puerto Rican, on the census to indicate their Hispanic origin. But when it comes to race, Residents must choose among white, black, American Indian, multiple options for Asian heritage, or they can write something in. 
most Puerto Ricans choose white. There are people that don't want to use the word black because they think it's an insult. And there's still this idea that we need to better the race, said Dr. Abadia, a sociology professor at the University of Puerto Rico. This phrase, to better the race, is a popular saying in Latin American countries that suggests light skin is more desirable than dark skin. Many Puerto Ricans say that they also feel that choosing black erases their unique cultural identity, including language, food, and customs, and aligns their experience too closely with that of the African Americans on the mainland. Ms. Antonetti said that any shame in identifying as black in Puerto Rico stem from a lack of positive or affirming images of blackness. The education system, which has never talked about all of the contributions of black people, has always shown us as slaves, not as people who were enslaved, she said. Before the 1960s, the census takers in the United States and Puerto Rico decided people's race for them and applied whiteness liberally on the island, sometimes reclassifying people from black to white. The Puerto Rican elite were very much working together with the United States and privileging whiteness among the population, said Dr. Mara Loveman, a sociology professor from the University of California at Berkeley. See, the unspoken rule of, of, of who counts as white were increasingly more generous as part of a broader societal project to appear whiter to the United States. According to the, U, U, uh, to the Census Information Center at the University of Puerto Rico, census data is used to help determine funding for federal programs based on population. And in the wake of political unrest, natural disasters on the island, the data has also helped the government to track population's declines and the number of residents moving to the mainland. But activists say a better census data about race is necessary to understand what some say is taboo in Puerto Rico, racism. People say, well, how can we be racist? We're Puerto Rican. William Ramirez, who is the director of the ACLU of Puerto Rico said, it's been a task to get people to recognize that yes, there is racism here. Mr. Ramirez, who lives 35 minutes from the town of Luisa, uh, he says he regularly sees men and women who tell them that they have experienced a discrimination based on the color of their skin. Dr. Loveman goes on to say, the way we measure and identify as black or white will affect how much inequality we see in society along racial lines. A problem exists even when people as seen in the article, may be in denial about that problem. And this problem is called racism. But before I talk about racism, I want to take a moment to define terms to make sure that we're all using the same definitions. And so I want to rely here on those who are researchers in the field and lean toward their definition as opposed to the common use that you'll find being used by the average population who's not taking time or has not researched the topic. And so I want to lean towards their definition. And I want to set a few definitions up first before we get to racism to see how it functions in relationship to the other topics. So when we talk about race, professionals are talking about race as a, so a social or political construct that is based mainly upon the appearance of 
skin color, hair texture, nose shape, and size of lips. But it wouldn't include things like eye color. That's race. The second is ethnicity. Ethnicity, different than race, is a different category. It represents group people groups by culture, language, and often geography. For example, to be Puerto Rican is an ethnicity. It's not a race. Third is the term prejudice. Prejudice has to do with an inward attitude that a person might possess or perception that one might hold inwardly towards a people group that is not based upon facts and generally always negative. Fourth, discrimination. Discrimination is when a person acts upon the inward prejudice that they hold towards a people group. And that brings me finally to what is racism. Dr. Beverly Tatum defines racism in this way. She says, racism is a system of advantage based on race involving cultural messages, institutional policies and practice, as well as the beliefs and actions of individuals. In American history, the belief that has shaped our culture and has been prevalent in the worldview uh, is that uh, from ancient times here, at least from, from earlier times, from the, the colonization here through the, the moving of development of the United States of America, it is based on this one idea that those who are classified as white are biologically, morally, and intellectually superior to others, especially those who are black. Everyone in the culture has been affected by this worldview. Those who are in the field of sociology who are experts say the illustration that they like to use one is like it's like smog in the city air. Everyone is breathing the air. Everyone is being negatively affected by this smog that's in the air. Counseling psychologist Dr. Janet Helms put it this way. The messages we receive about assumed superiority or inferiority shape our perceptions of reality and influence our interactions with others. To grasp how this problem has permeated our society, I would like to offer you the findings of two professors who spent years researching this topic. The first being Dr. Tricia Rose, who has done a seminar called How Structural Racism Works. And in that seminar, she talks about five key areas in which racism has highly, it's highly dynamic and consequential. And some of those areas that she lists are like the field of the area of housing, education, mass media, wealth and jobs, and criminal justice. Dr. Robert, Robin D'Angelo, in her lecture relating to a similar topic on the matter, names a number of contributing factors that have led to the ubiquity of this problem. And let me give them to you. She says 300 years of slavery, torture, rape and brutality, medical experimentation, black codes, sharecropping, bans on testifying against whites, mandatory segregation, bans on jury service and voting, lynching and mob violence, imprisonment for unpaid work, bans on interracial marriage, redlining, forced sterilization, employment discrimination, educational discrimination, biased laws and policing, white flight, subprime mortgages, mass incarceration, 
school to prison pipeline, disproportionate special education referrals and punishment, testing, tracking and school funding, biased media, voter suppression, cultural mockery, historical omissions, unaddressed trauma, and the list goes on. Let me offer you two examples of what this looks like when it impedes or comes out in the way uh, it is expressed in life and in the general individual place. So there was a study done back in 1947 by Kenneth and Mamie Clark, uh, and it had to do with the perception of, uh, they weren't referred to as African Americans at that time, but African American children about their own identity in light of the cultural messages that they had received about themselves. And so in this, they asked them a number of questions, and it was compared to uh, two dolls that were given based on either light skin or white skin or, or darker skin and, and colored skin. And it, it was asked uh, some questions like, which one of these dolls is the nice doll? And which one of these dolls is the, the bad doll? And throughout the testing and the questioning, the, the, the results came out unanimous that these young African-American children perceived that white as good and black as bad. And that was in 1947. Anderson Cooper, uh, who in 2010 on CNN decided to repeat the experiment, this time including both white and black children, to see if some almost 60 years had the perception in culture and the cultural messages changed so that children had a different perception now than what had happened back in the 1940s. And he asked the similar questions that were asked in this study. And what he found out was that white and black children both unanimously had a bias towards white being good and black being bad. For me, one of the most difficult moments in watching uh, the survey was when he looked at the young African-American children and asked the question, but which doll looks like you? And they then struggled to want to reach out for the white doll but had to reach for the black doll. It was a heart-wrenching moment. Here's the second example of how this plays out in our society. So there was a two-year study done just a few years ago, and the results were published in 2016 by Catherine DeSellis and former co some colleagues of hers, published in the journal Administrative Science Quarterly. And they published this back in 2016, and it was about how African-American and Asian job applicants who intentionally mask their race on resumes seem to have better success in getting job interviews. And they sent out thousands of resumes. Basically, they would put the name or put in racial clues, but keep the resumes, education, and things the same, but only put in racial clues, either based on name or certain items to identify them with the race or to whiten what they call whiten the resume, remove those identifiers to see what kind of res response they would get. And what they found out is that, uh, th that if you were removed the racial things that, that gave identity, um, um, indication to your identity, then you are more likely to be called back at least twice the amount of times than if you put those racial clues in. And you might think, well, well what about those who claim to be diversity friendly? And what they found out about those organizations is they were just as discriminatory as those who did not claim to be. And, and most often those who did put it in were more at a disadvantage because they trusted that the person said they were uh, diversity friendly. Dr. Sellers said this, a bias amongst minority runs rampant through the resume screening process at companies throughout the United States. Discrimination still exists in the worst workplaces. Organizations now have an opportunity to recognize the issue as a pinch point so that they can do something 
about it. But this issue has not just affected what we might classify as the white community, but has also affected people of color because we're all breathing the same air. Uh, as we saw in the article of the, about the Puerto Rican dilemma and in the child testing, uh, it has emerged in the people of color community in the form of what is referred to as colorism. Colorism. And it has to do when people who are in the same racial category hold prejudiced attitudes and then discriminate against others within their own racial group based on the lightness or darkness of their skin color. And some have gone so far as to even embrace an inferiority complex and as a result take a, a victim mentality. In addition to all of this, the problem becomes compounded. Would you add on top of that personal responsibility? And so I ask the question, where does this problem come from? And the Bible answers that question. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, their relationships were fractured with one another. We see in Genesis account, in Genesis chapter 3, right after uh, Adam and Eve had sinned and God comes to hold them to account, to hold them to responsible for their actions, what is the first thing that Adam does? He blames his wife. Uh, he, he says, it's her fault takes no personal responsibility but blames his wife. And then God then introduces as a result of judgment friction in the relationship between the man and the woman, which has been played out time and time again throughout history. But there's also something else that happened. When Adam and Eve sinned and their relationships were fractured, it did not stop with them but spread to their children. And sin began to manifest itself in other ways. Let me show you a text in Genesis chapter 4. A number of years later, in the descendants of Adam and Eve, here are the descendants of Cain, we find one of his descendants. His name is Lamech, and he said this. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me and a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. With Lamech, we see the beginnings of where this problem comes from. We see that sin, and one of the ways that it manifests itself in human history is this desire to position oneself in a superior position to others. And that has been the replete uh, history, the story of history of humanity, and we can name numerous exam examples. But this particular sin has plagued America since its inception and origin. Dr. Evans puts it this way. He says, listen, the problem with race in America is not fundamentally a problem of skin. It is a problem of sin. It is a problem in that people have not been not willing to address the sin that has led to a division among skin as we have uh, hold tenaciously to our culture. See, as I said two weeks ago when we started this whole series and began to talk about this concept of a worldview, worldviews uh, determine how we see the world and interact with the world. And unlike a good pet that's willing to stay at home, worldviews will not stay at home. They leave the house with us. We take them to work. We vote with them. We choose our neighborhoods with them. We choose what we lobby for with them. And most assuredly, our worldviews affect our interactions with other people. But there's good news in the midst of all this darkness. 
that since racism and colorism are sins at the very core and root that, eat, that people deal with, then they can be set free from them by the power of God and a renewed mind when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ in confession, repentance, and faith. But for those of us who've taken that step to come into a relationship with Christ, what should be our biblical response to this issue that plagues our society? Today, I can only give you a starting point. I would like to propose that Christians should respond and interact with others based on three things. Equality, love, and biblical justice. Equality, love, and biblical justice. So the first is equality. The idea for treating others equally is rooted in two biblical truths, the image of God and the plan of salvation. Two weeks ago, we read Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, in which we read that all humans are made in the image of God and given capacity, capacities from God equally to serve as his image bearers on earth. So this grants all humans equal dignity before God and should be with one another. Paul in the New Testament many years later would, would say a similar thing that all humans derive from the same source and thereby speaks to the equality. Uh, Acts chapter 1 verses 26 and 27. Paul said, and he, that is God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him yet he is actively not far from each one of us. In our primary text that we looked at this morning, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16, we see there that Christ's work on the cross not only reconciles us to God, but reconciles us to one another as he, by doing that, gives us equal status in the family of God by the Spirit. We were given equal status because God granted it to us no matter our ethnicity. We see this in verse 19 of Ephesians 2. It reads this way, so then you, being Gentiles, those who are not of Jewish descent, are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What Paul is getting at here is that our ethnic or racial status does not, does not determine our status in God's family. We're all equal members of God's family. And so Paul takes this theology and he works it out in other places when he writes to churches to make these distinctions so that people won't continue to divide themselves or view themselves as, as superior or inferior because of what society has laid down as the boundaries of what should be. We see this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. We've also been united to Christ and to one another by the Spirit, this one Spirit, as Paul lays out here in Ephesians chapter 2, and we make up together collectively the new temple of God. We are the temple in which God dwells. And God, in light of that, has extended his salvation equally to people without distinction of ethnic group or racial group. And thereby, we see in heaven at the end of time a picture that John sees in which all people are present. This is what he writes. 
After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. He says something similar in that great passage uh, about how Jews and Gentiles relate in salvation in Romans chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. See, in essence, God shows no partiality, as Paul said in Acts 10, and we see in Romans chapter 2. And God treats people then with equality, and it would seem to follow that those who have become members of God's family would imitate their father in their relationships with others. And what this means is that we let go of adopting a worldview that either positions us as superior or inferior and adopt in its place a view of equality. That brings me to the second point. Treating others with equality is rooted in Scripture, but so also is loving our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus gives commands to those who would be his followers to love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, he elevates this command to attach it to the greatest commandment that is given when he is asked about this. Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40. Here we read these words. Teacher, which is the great, great commandment in the law? Asking for a singular commandment. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And second is like it. A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. They only ask for one commandment. Jesus refuses to let it go there because Jesus says there's an unbreakable link between people's love for God and people's love for other people. You cannot break the two apart. If someone is to truly love God, then they must love other people who are made in his image. Now, we might ask, like one person did ask, well, who then is my neighbor? Jesus responds in the parable of the Good Samaritan, in which he crosses ethnic lines to demonstrate the concept of mercy in Luke 10, verses 30 through 37. It's whoever is in need of help, regardless of their ethnicity or their race. And Jesus goes on, as Paul goes on to say as a disciple of Jesus, that our love should not just extend to those who are in the community of faith, but also to those who are outside uh, in Galatians chapter 6 verse 10. And Jesus does not just simply tell us to love our enemies, but he demonstrates that for us in his own actions, in his own life. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 47, we see some of that. We also see it uh, that Jesus does not allow it to happen in, a, in the great passage of John chapter 4, from which we draw the name of this church. So in John chapter 4, Jesus decides to go through the area of Samaria. Pastor Mike has preached about this on the past, and he's talked about this. Samaria was the area that was north there of Jerusalem, and Jews generally had the practice of, well, the discriminatory practice of circumventing uh, Samaria because they didn't have any desire to deal with the Samaritans because they viewed them as inferior. And so they had no desire to connect with them. Uh, and then Jesus' own disciples held those same prejudices themselves. But Jesus says, as the leader of the group, we're going to go through Samaria because Jesus had a specific assignment that he wanted to do. Now, there's some interesting things that happened in the text. One of the things that happens is Jesus intentionally sends away his disciples so that he could interact with a Samaritan woman. Why does he send his disciples away? Because he knows that they harbor prejudices in their heart, and he doesn't want them interfering 
with his uh, mission that he's on for God. And as a result of that, they're out of the picture. So Jesus takes time to interact with this woman about uh, issues that she would have uh, not been ready for at that time because of their own ethnic disparity and the discrimination that they had received from the Jews. She knows he's Jewish. She can look at him and tell, him, tell what he looks like. There's nothing in the passage that indicates that he says or uh, uh, says to her, I'm a Jew. She just looks at him, and by his speaking, by his attire, and by his dress, she knows that he's Jewish. But as a result of that, he does something surprising for her that catches her off guard. He says to her, would you allow me to drink from your cup? How is it that a Jew who generally is prejudiced would want to uh, take his cups and put his Jewish lips on her Samaritan cup? But Jesus is breaking down social barriers in order to bring God to this woman. And ultimately, he does not allow the prejudices of his disciples or the discriminatory practices of his culture to keep him from doing what God says. He says he refuses to operate by those standards no matter what society says and says instead he's going to operate by God's standards and as a result an entire people come to faith in him see Jesus didn't just talk about loving those who were other he demonstrated it in his own life I like the way Dr. Evans defines love when he says this passionately and righteously pursuing the well-being of another love always leads us to the action for the benefit of others here he refers to this, which brings us into the third topic, as biblical justice. Biblical justice. So there's an emphasis that we see in the New Testament when we read it. For those of us who have experienced the salvation of God, there seems to be this other idea that's always connected to it. You see it in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, right the preceding verses right before the text we read today. Titus, when Paul writes to Titus and to Timothy, he talks to both of, both of them, Titus chapter 3 and then 2 Timothy chapter 2. And there's this idea that Paul is always linking up with salvation. And there's this idea, and this is the idea, that salvation should always lead to a life of good works. That, that salvation never stops at simply uh, guaranteeing a person's uh, personal destiny to heaven and then doesn't play out in a person's life. That kind of faith, James says, doesn't save a person. The, the, a saving, transforming faith that changes a person's heart and worldview ultimate play, ultimately plays out in their life in the form of good works. So Dr. Evans explains biblical justice in this way when he writes this. He says, listen, clearly the content of the gospel message is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Scripture is plain in that it is personal faith in the finished work of Christ that brings people the forgiveness of sin, a personal relationship with God, and eternal life. But the gospel scope, however, reaches further into sanctification, within which which located the concepts of justice and social action. Therefore, the church is commissioned to deliver the content of the gospel, that's evangelism, so that people can come into a relationship with God, yet the church is also commissioned to live out the scope of the gospel, sanctification, so that people can realize the full manifestation of it and glorify God. He says that biblical justice can only bear its fruit with regard to the issue of race in America in particular when we acknowledge the sin of our division, repent of it, offer and receive forgiveness for it, and build a bridge of oneness with each other in the place of it through mutual service toward the common goal of advancing the kingdom of God. 
for him that was wrapped up in this idea of biblical justice is reconciliation, restitution, and responsibility. And one of the ways this plays out, at least at Oak Cliff when I was there under the church, was that he would seek to, to get churches who were predominantly white and churches who were predominantly black and partner together to adopt schools in the community so that they could work together for a solution to relieve some of the pressures uh, and some of the negative consequences that have happened in the community. But let me offer you an example of what this might look like in our personal lives from a story of a relative of mine. So back in the 1980s, there was a relative of mine who happened to be one of the first uh, blacks who was promoted into upper management uh, in this position that she was in uh, working for the state. And as a result of that, one of the things that she became aware of as she got promoted to upper management, which she had no idea about when she was just as a lower worker, uh, she became to, came to find out as she gave, got access to information about merits uh, and how those merits had been distributed based on job performance, she discovered that there was a disparity along racial lines in which merits were being distributed to one group and not to the other, despite the fact that the job performance dictated or said that there should have been merits given, but merits were not given because there was limited funding, but there was always preferential treatment towards one group of people. So what my relative decided to do, because she said, hey, listen, I'm here as a servant of God to represent God. She said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to simply even the playing field. I'm going to say, tell everyone, here's the standard that you must meet in order to receive a merit raise. I'm not going to give preferential treatment to any one group over another. Now, that's did cause problems within her own group because they were expecting to receive preferential treatment. But she said, I'm not doing that because I'm a representative of God. God is one who shows no partiality. If you want to receive a merit raise, then what you need to do is meet the standard that has been set. And when she did that and she began to enact that, what happened was what she started to notice was this, that over time there were whites who were promoted. There were blacks who were promoted. There were Asians who were promoted. There were Indians who were promoted. There were Hispanics who were promoted. As long as the playing field was leveled, those who were willing to take partial responsibility to meet that requirement then were able to be promoted. That's what justice looks like when it plays out in society. Latasha Morrison in her book, Be the Bridge, said this, confession is important, but true repentance must be coupled with coupled words and actions. See, as bridge builders, our job is to hold our organizations, that would be our governments, our churches, our places of employment to account. It is our job to call them to, the, to a change of direction and help execute that change in directions in the direction of both words and actions together. So in this vast sea of the problem, where might we begin? Well, some of you have already taken steps. You're sitting in this room today listening to this message. Others of you have already sought to build relationships across racial and ethnic lines and sought to treat other people with dignity and respect and fairly. But as Pastor Mike has said on numerous occasions, whenever we enter these discussions, it requires from all of us a great amount of humility, grace, willingness to listen and learn from one another. And it does require of us to be willing to confess if we have sinned and adopted the world's values and to let those values go and repent and turn to embrace God's values and then seek to live our lives out in the public sphere according to God's standards as opposed to our cultural, racial, or ethnic group standards and seek to live life in that way, both individually and ultimately collectively as a church. Let me close with a story that I found fascinating. It's about a guy named Daryl Davis. He's a blues musician. He's black. 
but he has what, is what many of us would think of as a very interesting hobby. His hobby is uh, befriending members of the Ku Klux Klan. He says that once a, a friendship happens and blossoms, he, that people begin to realize the hate that they have is misguided, and they begin to, to let go of that. In his relationship of doing this over the last 30 years through working uh, and talking to and having conversation with members of the Ku Klux Klan, some 200 members of the Ku Klux Klan have given up their robes. And he's kept them himself in his house to remind him about the dent that he's been able to make in racism. Talking about in an interview how this all took place in his life, it started off where he was in a bar listening to a, playing uh, blues music and music and a conversation he ended up having with a guy at the table he did not know at that time and ended up interacting in this conversation, finding out that the guy was in the Ku Klux Klan, and that's why he didn't want to really talk to him, and so they started a conversation. And, he, and this is what he said in the interview. He said, the fact that a Klansman and a black person could sit down at the same table and enjoy the same music, that was a seed planted. And so what do you do when a seed is planted? You nourish it. And that was the impetus for me to write a book. And so I decided to go around the country and sit down with Klan's leaders and Klan's members to find out, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? He went on to describe how his preparation for these meetings as he went to, to do it. He said, the best thing you can do is to study up on the subject as much as you can. I went in armed, but not with a weapon, but with knowledge. I knew as much about the Klan, if not more, than many of the Klan people that I interviewed. When they see that you know about their organization, their belief system, they respect you, whether they like you or not. They respect the fact that you've done your homework. And just like any good salesman, you want a return visit. And so they recognized that I had done my homework, which allowed me to come back again and again. He even attended Klan rallies. That began to chip away at their ideology because when two enemies are talking, they're not fighting. It's when talking ceases that the ground becomes fertile for violence. If you spend five minutes with your worst enemy, it doesn't have to be about race, it could be about anything, you'll find that you both have something in common. And as you build upon those commonalities, you're forming a relationship. And as you build that relationship, you're forming a friendship. That's what would happen. I didn't convert anybody. They saw the light and converted themselves. See, brothers and sisters, we may not be able to eradicate the problem of racism, but we sure can make the world a better place for our children than what it is today. And often that comes with us taking the starting point of building relationships across ethnic and racial lines, letting go of views that say I'm inferior or superior, and adopting a view and mindset of e equality, uh, de dealing with others in love and seeking to be just in our actions wherever we find ourselves. The reality is in the power of Christ, we can make a difference in this world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I pray that we would take these things to heart and consider what might we do differently, Lord. There's just a reality, Lord, that our culture, uh, with its cultural messages, with societal practices and other things, Lord, wants to bend us and form us and mold us into its shape. But we thank you by the power of Christ, as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, that because of Scripture, our minds can be renewed, transformed, and changed, and we don't have to allow ourselves to be formed by the world, but instead to be formed by the Spirit. And that the church can be a place, and I thank you for living water, to be a place that says to the world, this is not how you have to live. It can be different. 
because God is the God of the Jew and the Gentile. And so we thank you, Father, for that. And we pray that we will live in a light of that reality. Let the word of God be the thing that rules us in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. If you direct your attention on screen.